0: CBS
2: presents America Changed Forever with CBS News correspondent Jeff
3: Pagase. Welcome to another edition of America Changed Forever. And on this episode, we're going to drill down on who this special counsel is, as well as the challenges that the attorney general faces with these ongoing cases. That could potentially lead to charges against a former president of the United States. It's still hard to believe just even saying that. But that's where we are right now. We're going to talk to one of the really thorough, really good reporters on the justice beat. Glenn Thrush, Justice Department correspondent for The New York Times. Glenn, thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. All right. So tell me what you know about this new special counsel John Jack Smith
2: well the first thing is uh, this iconic photograph of him bearded wearing a, a purple robe uh, that prosecutors wear uh, at the war crimes Commission in The Hague so to a certain extent this this image has has really surpassed <laughs> a lot of the uh, the more granular information about him it it has become kind of a, a uh, totemic on Twitter, particularly for folks on the left who see him as being this sort of steely-eyed prosecutor who's finally going uh, going to, to bring former President Trump to account. Uh, in fact, he has had this very long career as a federal prosecutor, including a very long stint in New York City, in which he became very well known to a lot of the reporters who cover the courts in New York, Uh, And since 2018, he has been assigned to prosecute uh, war criminals uh, emanating from from the conflict in Kosovo in the 1990s.
3: But as you point out, there is a lot out there. You know, of course, when he was picked, everybody's trying to see or at least reporters if there is any politics in his background what did you find well uh, over the weekend there were some disclosures
2: you know obviously he is being very highly scrutinized by president trump and his supporters and president trump has already accused him of being sort of a tainted prosecutor uh, smith himself is is a political independent that was a point that the justice department made very clearly prior to his appointment, just when we were briefed on it, an hour before Merrick Garland, the attorney general, took the stage. But his wife is not nonpartisan. She contributed $2,000 in two $1,000 contribution to assist President Biden in 2020. And she is listed as a producer on um, Becoming, Michelle Obama's documentary. Mr. Smith does not seem to have that same kind of trail on social media, or in terms of comments. But, you know, I I think the level of scrutiny that is being applied to him over the next couple of weeks will quite likely yield something in his past statements or filings that folks on the right will find objectionable. But at the moment, the only material that has been used against him was uh, the material uh, pertaining to his wife. I asked some of the folks in the Justice Department whether or not they had knowledge of any of that beforehand, and I, and I think it was pretty widely known before the department made the, the pick, uh, it was described to me sort of as the material that's been out there now is not much more than one could have obtained through a Google search. So I do think there are a number of opposition research firms. Uh, we have a very active minority on the House investigations and judiciary committees that will soon become the majority that are that appear to be looking into this as well. So whatever material that is out there on Mr. Smith is likely to become more voluminous over the next few weeks.
3: Yeah, I I think it's, you know, for our listeners, it's just the the nature of politics at this moment in history. Okay, so even though Jack Smith might not have a, a track record of making any sort of, you know, politicized statements, you know, the opposition, whoever that might be, uh, in any case, that's politically charged. We'll look for family members, parents, <laughs> specifically. But Glenn, what do you think? Is it is it fair game for President Trump supporters that you know the special counsel's wife clearly leans progressive? Well, I, I think it's a fine line, right? I
2: think when you're looking, l- let's look at some comparable scrutiny of spouses. And the one that pops most quickly to mind is Ginny Thomas, Clarence Thomas's wife. Ginny Thomas was very, very active with President Trump in the period after the 2020 election. She has been, in fact, she was called upon to testify before the January 6th committee. She took direct action. She entered the political arena of her own volition and was a figure of some prominence when she chose to do so and had access to really the highest levels of Republican politics during that period of time. I think one would apply the same litmus to Jack Smith's wife to see if she had taken a more active role in politics. She is a private citizen. She has the right to have her own opinions. And if I think it is found that she took a more hands-on role or played some, uh, attempted to counsel him in terms of how, how which prosecution should or shouldn't be made based on political opinion, uh, then perhaps uh, that would warrant a greater level of scrutiny. But, you know, if you're kind of looking at Smith's record himself, there are, he, he, one of the reasons he was chosen is he was head of the Justice Department's Public Integrity Unit and participated in a couple of prosecutions of Republican officials, including former Governor Bob McDonald in Virginia, where he actually got a conviction, but that conviction was later overturned by the Supreme Court. So uh, I, I think when I see the criticism of Mr. Smith uh, that's appearing on social media that I think is having the most, the widest circulation. I think uh, that is likely to be, uh, to be raised, uh, raised uh, more than than his wife, just simply because it represents his actions in the arena, and you know the case has been made by some of Donald Trump's supporters that this indicates that that uh, he has an intent to go after Republican officials, and even when he succeeds in in obtaining a conviction that it gets overturned. So I had an official uh, at the department describe him as a golden unicorn to me, as somebody who had the sweet spot of prosecutorial experience, public integrity experience. And one factor that's been kind of overlooked that is not a small one, is that he's been out of the country since 2018. So he was not around for uh, the impeachments. He was not around for the 2020 election. Um, So he was physically not on the scene. And that was, I think, viewed by the Justice Department as an asset. But but I will tell you, having, having spoken to a bunch of Justice Department officials over the last couple of days, no one is under any illusion that this is going to provide Merrick Garland, the department, or even Smith with, with a lot of protection. Uh, as he goes about his job, he is going to come under a lot of attack, and people are going to be scrubbing his record and his family's records.
3: Not to belabor this point, but you and I both have been around long enough to remember and star may he rest in peace who who uh, clearly had when he was picked to be special counsel in essentially what became all things clinton he was clearly a partisan republican he had that track record so In a sense, times have changed, at least with with this administration. They they found, as the source described to you, that golden unicorn, somebody who doesn't have much of a track record. He was out of the country at the same time. But my point is, remember Ken Starr. Well, look, you know, the, the
2: golden unicorn comes with a busted knee. Right? <laughs> he, He's not perfect. He, uh, you know, he injured himself. Apparently, he got hit. I think he got hit by a scooter as he was sort of on his bicycle. Um, yeah, no, I, I think we're, you know, we are in an environment. And look, this is a microcosm of uh, Merrick Garland's entire approach as Attorney General, right? He is attempting um, to both project and embody a, a post or non partisan dispensation of justice, right? Uh, that doesn't protect him in this political environment, regardless of what his behavior is. He has been, we, you know, we have congressional committee. Uh, I was at a press conference up on the Hill a couple of weeks ago in which the heads of the two main investigating committees on the House side are talking about the politicization of the Justice Department um, uh, without necessarily at, the, at this time pointing to any direct evidence of that. Um, Garland's view is uh, obviously quite different like he inherited a department under uh, former Attorney General Barr that was much more muscular in terms of its willingness to jump into political issues and as we know ad nauseum President Trump was sought directly um, to manipulate the Justice Department in terms of uh, his quest to overturn the 2020 results so Garland you know is was believes that he's been was put in this office to rebuild public trust in the department the question is whether or not this process however well uh, executed and undertaken will do that or if we're in such an entrenched situation uh, that that almost everyone's minds are already made up.
3: Well, and let's let's hope that's not the case, because you know if you're listening to this program and, and you're a Republican, the the fact that you have this former judge uh, as Attorney General, who it seems truly believes that it is important that the Department of Justice um, is nonpartisan. And there is you don't have the influence from the the executive branch that helps all Americans um
2: that is important you know from having uh from having covered this yourself look we 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 don't know um and and you know part of what we're doing as reporters is attempting to find out as much as we can but at the moment um we don't have anything on the public record or in terms of Reported material to indicate that Garland has been in communication with anybody who would be poli- politically manipulating him, and from from my limited experience in covering the department, um, uh, he appears to be uh, uh, honest in terms of his uh, desire to distance himself from a political process, and that is not only sort of based on his behavior over the past year and eighteen months. It's based on his deportment as, uh, as both a judge and as a prosecutor in the Justice Department before he became a judge. So so the the pain, portraying Merrick Garland absent any new evidence to the contrary as being um, a political actor in this arena it, it is difficult to make that doesn't' it's a difficult point to make It doesn't mean people won't do it.
3: Well and, and I think if you look if you look at his actions, Which, of course, I think actions speak louder than words, especially at this time in history when people throw around unsubstantiated claims all the time, every minute. You know, I think the fact that he appointed the special counsel and the way he discussed his rationale for appointing the special counsel, the fact is the Former president has declared that he's going to run for president. There is this, uh, it it looks like, the matchup between Biden and, and Trump could happen once again. Therefore, I need to step out of this process. The way that he set up the rationale, it makes sense. If you're Merrick Garland and you don't want people critical, uh, whatever decision is made, uh, and then pointing to politics. You want whatever happens to have credibility. Credibility. Ugh, I can't even say the word anymore. Credibility. Well, I, you
2: know, it's, it's interesting, right? So when you look at the process here, right, of how this came about, you know, there was not a, uh, it was not a foregone conclusion that a special counsel was going to be appointed, dare I say, even if both parties, uh, meaning Biden and Trump, uh, choose to run, right? It was, according to the regulation involved in the appointment of a special counsel, basically voluntary. Um, and, and, and it's important to note, and this was not something that was really noted at the time because most people aren't geeking out on this, but the, there are there sort of two reasons for justifying the appointment of a special counsel. The first is a, con- is a conflict of interest. Garland pointedly said no conflict of interest. That was not why he chose this. What was behind door number two was this notion of of extraordinary circumstances. And uh, you can't think of circumstances that are more extraordinary than the current set of circumstances, right? Um, But even under those extraordinary circumstances, uh, my reporting uh, had shown me that Garland didn't want to do this. Like this was not something he really, really... Uh, believed was the way out. He felt that the normal processes of the Justice Department could handle all this. Um, he was persuaded, I think, that the optics of it and the environment that he was operating in made that impossible. So it's so it's a subtle point, right? Garland doesn't think there's a conflict of interest. He, he believes, you know, insofar as you know, no one gets to be Attorney General of the United States or a nom- nominee for the Supreme Court without having... A sense of themselves or an ego. And insofar as as Garland has an ego, I think it, it's very much pointed in the direction of self-confidence in his capacity to make these difficult decisions with impartiality. And I think what made this sort of difficult for him personally was having to accept uh, the placement of this outside person. I, 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 I think that's a true thing. I, you know, I think this affords him a shield, a limited shield. I think it affords him uh, a little bit of uh, time and cover. But ultimately, again, based on my reporting, I don't think his his folks have any illusions that whatever Jack Smith comes up with won't
3: ultimately be laid at his feet. I'm just thinking here. And I don't think I'm going to go out on a limb here. And I want to get your thoughts about this. All right, so we have a special counsel. We have, historically speaking, these very these weighty decisions about whether you charge a former president. Here's the thing, Glenn. It doesn't have to be this way. Here's why. If the former president would just say, Listen, I made a mistake. In the rush to get out of the White House, I just grabbed some docs. I just, I made a mistake. I was packing my own stuff. You know, I can't pack my own stuff. I usually have people do that for me. I did it. I'm sorry. Let's make a deal. Instead of, this is fake news. You don't know what you're talking about. I have every right to these things. Right I mean, he really legally does not have a leg to stand on, and every time he gets in the way of the investigation, the penalty increases. And so this is another, in my view, another self-inflicted wound that it, it did not have to be a big deal. No one and I my reporting, early on when this started was, I had sources saying, "You know, we did not seek this." <laughs> We're going to bend over backwards to, to make this go away. Yeah. Yeah. Archives, DOJ, yeah, nobody wanted
2: this headache. Nobody wanted this. But, but you can't – look, I've covered Trump. I'm from New York. I covered Trump in New York. I covered Trump in the White House. Okay? He is, a, he can't, he is by his nature disruptive. He is by his nature uh, a, a rule challenger. And I think what makes this thing really, you you said he doesn't have a legal leg to stand on. His argument is literally that as a former president, I have rights and privileges that are above what you would call the law for standard citizens. That is ultimately, I'm distilling all of his legal points into that one, one point. That is that I am entitled to these special privileges. And you know, while that um, flies in the face of of what the Supreme Court precedent in the Nixon case seems to indicate, and what the statutes seem to indicate. That's a powerful argument in a pol- in the political arena, and the decision making process that ultimately uh, that will ultimately be made is by its nature a political act, even if it is made based solely on evidence and following the Justice Manual, the rule book for prosecutions inside the department, because. It is a factor in a political environment. And the the appointment of the special counsel, to me, represented Garland's big public acknowledgement that that is in fact the case. Now, that doesn't mean he won't go where the evidence follows. But what it does mean is that there needs to be, in the course of this investigation, such an overwhelming preponderance of evidence uh, to prosecute Trump that it overcomes the political uh, it overcomes uh, the, the potential political consequences. And just to dive into the weeds a little bit, Jeff, I know you understand these issues, but your listeners may not be as conversant with them as 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 folks who cover this are. The two ch- main charges, just to distill them, uh, in the Mar-a-Lago documents case. The January sixth case for 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 people who aren't following this closely is a long simmer. This is not. There's not a theory of the case as to what uh, laws he may have specifically violated. Um, This is going to take a much longer period of time, but the Mar-a-Lago documents case is more straightforward. It's difficult, but it's more straightforward, and it comes down to two charges. The first is based on the Espionage Act and the willful mishandling of documents to the extent that a foreign power could obtain sensitive, quote-unquote, closely held defense secrets, essentially. And it seems just on its surface that, that there's certainly enough evidence to investigate that in this case. But the second charge is obstruction of justice. Uh, and that stems from characterizations Trump and his lawyers made about turning over the documents. And that also seems very much on its face, again, to be a, li- a live case. Um, the big thing that both Smith, uh, the big thing that Smith is going to have to decide that was weighing on Garland's team is whether or not you can do obstruction without doing the underlying Espionage Act charge. For, for various complicated reasons, an obstruction charge is a cleaner case to make in front of a jury than the Espionage uh, Act case. Uh, so that so that are, these are the matrix of decisions that they have to make. And I've been told that while we're seeing evidence that they're pretty deep into their investigation, pretty far along into the investigation, that they're not there yet. And that, particularly in terms of the instruction, they need an utterly airtight case. So that that might take a while. So so the decision to charge, um, uh, getting back to the original point about the politics, the political stakes being so high and the recognition by both Garland and Smith of the political consequences uh, of this decision makes their demand for irrefutable evidence that much higher. So in that respect, the political pressure externally makes the process itself more rigorous.
3: It certainly does. And we'll continue to follow it. Glenn Thrush, Sheepshead Bay High School's own. <laughs> <laughs> me, me and Larry David. <laughs> oh, they taught you both well there. Good school. Good school. Glenn, thanks for your time. Great talking to Let's talk about climate change, or better yet, a consequence of climate change, the drought, the annual, at this rate, drought in California. It's a real problem, but I'm not the expert. I am not the expert, but we're going to talk to someone who I think it's fair to say is well-researched on this issue. Haley Smith, breaking news reporter for the LA Times. Haley, thanks for your time.
1: Thanks so much for having
3: me. There is so much going on in this world that I think most Americans forget to focus on the drought. Mm-hmm. Because there are economic consequences too. It can hit you eventually in the pocketbook. But just from an environmental standpoint, this is important stuff or especially for Californians, which is now what experiencing its fourth consecutive year of drought.
1: Uh, well, we we actually just experienced our driest ever three-year period, and we are, yes, facing our fourth consecutive year of drought, if current forecasts manifest. So pretty dry, and things are also getting warmer. Um, so climate change is, is certainly starting to take its toll on this state.
3: I read somewhere in a new report that the state's irrigated farmland has dropped by... Uh, 752,000 acres or nearly 10% from 2019 to 2020. What kind of ramifications does that have for farmers or consumers? What kind of damage does that do?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's huge, right? California is a major food supplier, not just for residents of the state, but for the entire nation. So the agricultural industry, which is obviously by nature heavily dependent on water water supplies is taking a major hit. Um, the, the amount of irrigated land, as you mentioned, is shrinking. Um, the costs are soaring for water and farmers are having to make really difficult choices, you know, fallowing land or letting it go dry for another year um, versus trying to, you know, salvage it or use expensive water on it. So there's a lot of difficult choices ahead um, that could potentially ripple throughout the whole country.
3: California crop revenues fell by $1.7 billion. That is a lot of money. What What are politicians saying? What are they trying to do? Are they trying to do anything?
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, when we think about what lies ahead, it's probably not going to be – how do I say this? It's not going to be praying for rain, right? That doesn't seem like that's what the skies are going to open up and solve all of our problems. So we're really needing to think about adaptation. We're needing to think about new solutions, new technology, new infrastructure. Um, So there's a lot of things and we can get into them. But for example, water recycling. So the state is is looking for ways to basically capture and clean and reuse pretty much all the water that goes down our drains. Um, that's already happening in a lot of places, but we need more facilities and infrastructure to continue to expand that capability. We're also in need of improved stormwater capture so that when it does rain, all that water isn't going into gutters and down streets and back into the ocean. And then finally, there's uh, desalination, which is probably not a solution for agricultural areas, but for the urban areas, especially those along the coast, like L.A., San Diego, San Francisco, um, a lot of them are starting to look into desalination, which is the process of, you know, converting ocean water into water that's safe to drink. Um, the state actually approved two new desalination facilities in the last couple of months, but the process is not without controversy. It is energy intensive. It can be bad for the environment in the ocean. So a lot of people say it should really be a last resort after we've exhausted all other options. Um, But as we've outlined, you know, all of our options are becoming more and more urgent.
3: And I got to say, I love coming out to California or going out to California. Is it still that golden state?
1: Yes. California is wonderful and beautiful in so many ways. And even though it's easy to get, sort of despondent about some of these climate challenges we're facing, I also feel a lot of optimism from the climate community. You know, we have a lot of the smartest minds in the world working on these problems, looking for solutions. We have good government and we have funding that are trying to solve these problems. So I think we're as well positioned as we can be, even though we are in some way on the forefront of the climate crisis in the United States. Um, but to answer your question about you know is it still the golden state yes however there is an argument to be made that we do need to rethink or re-envision what California is going to look like. So here in Southern California, for example, it probably can't continue to be house after house of sprawling green lawns, right? It's probably gonna have to look a little bit more like Phoenix or Las Vegas with more drought tolerant landscaping, with more vertical living, with um, things that make us more efficient, you know, when it comes to climate and to water and a lot of the challenges we're facing.
3: Haley Smith. LA Times. Thanks for your time.
1: Thank you for having me.
3: If you know a nurse or doctor who works in an emergency room, you know how hard they are working right now. And that has been ongoing since the height of the pandemic. So while most of us have sort of gone on with our lives, they're still working hard, working overtime, double overtime, triple overtime, round the clock whatever you want to call it, not only because of COVID, but also because of this thing called RSV. Dr. Scott Kovner joins us now. He's an emergency room physician who works at University Southern California in Los Angeles County Hospital. Dr. Kovner, thanks for your time.
0: Thank you so much for having me. All
3: right, let's talk about RSV. First of all, explain to our listeners, what is it?
0: Yeah, so RSV is a really common virus. Uh, It's something that has been around for forever. And normally, you know, you don't hear about it too much in the news because it's just sort of a common part of everyday life. But what most people who don't work in a healthcare setting don't realize is even though it's a really common virus, uh, it still can be deadly, like any sickness infection can be. For most people, it's a super, super mild infection. You wouldn't even be able to differentiate it from your common cold get runny nose, a little bit of cough, some fever. In children, we'll often see those kids present, especially if they're on the younger side, like less than five years of age because it can cause more inflammation in their lungs. And they develop this condition called bronchiolitis. But in general, most kids do really, really well. Most adults do really, really well. They take some Tylenol drink some fluids, have some warm soup, and, and they get over it. Um, but every year in the United States on average, you know, especially in an adult population, people that are immunosuppressed, we see anywhere between 6,000 to 10,000 people die due to RSV infection or subsequent pneumonias. Um, and this is something that happens just every single year. It's part of the typical cycle of seasonal illness.
3: All right. I am not trying to get free medical care here. But I wanted to talk about the symptoms because I covered the midterms in New York. I came back to DC, and and really ever since, I, I had a little cold. I thought, oh, this is a run of the mill cold and a runny nose, which you know, several weeks after the midterms, I still kind of have. Could that be? RSV.
0: Well, if you're looking for free medical advice, you're definitely in the wrong country for free and cheap medical care. Um, (laughs) (laughs) All right. We're not talking (laughs) politics. here, But, uh, you know, it's it's impossible to say. And we do have tests. Um, You know, we do have antigen testing and PCR testing for RSV infection. Uh, But like I said, it's indistinguishable from like your what you would consider your common cold. In fact, I guarantee you many of the times in your life when you've had a cold, it's been RSV at some point or adenovirus or one of these other viruses. Um your symptoms right now it could be that but it's it's important to remember that the acute phase of infection is generally the time we worry the most um and like again that worry is very very minimal for otherwise healthy people otherwise healthy children just think of your common cold again but you could get a little bit of cough runny nose fevers and it's totally normal for a cough to linger for up to 2 to 3 weeks after you've even improved from an upper respiratory illness. So this little cough that you've got going on certainly could be the result of that infection. It doesn't mean that you're infectious right now. just means that your body is still recovering from that damage that was done to the lining of your airways, your nose, throat, and that you still got some blow in your nose to do to clear out that junk in your sinuses. You
3: kind of make me feel like I was in the examination room right right then and there. I mean, that... Yeah, that was good. And I didn't have to step on the scale, which for me is the worst part <laughs> of going in for a physical. And I always tell them, don't tell me how much <laughs> I weigh. And they still do it. it. Just ruins my week. No, my month. But anyway.
0: Well, the the secret is, is you got to take the blood pressure before you tell them the weight, oh. you know, so you don't get a- that elevated reading
3: <laughs> um, at this stage of my life. I get a lot of bad news when I go to the doctor. But anyway, enough about me. I want to talk about what's happening in hospitals because that's really important. In fact, when I go home, I have I live in a condo building and I have some neighbors who work in hospitals. And even though most Americans think, oh, the pandemic is over. For them, it's it doesn't seem to be because they wear the mask, they disinfect when they leave their home when they go into their home. It's really incredible the steps they have to take to stay healthy and to keep others healthy. Uh, and it just sort of reminds me of what's happening in hospitals right now. You and others have called it the perfect storm. Why?
0: Yeah, right now in hospitals, you know let me let me step back it's in obviously a lot of ways uh the life of healthcare workers changed during the pandemic but relative to the general population you know the things that i did every day you know while other people were staying at home or working from home i still got up went to work still did the same things that I did every day at work, still saw the same people that I normally see at work. Obviously, the conditions were very different, but my daily routine stayed very similar. Um, And I think now that people are returning to some more normalcy in their life as the pandemic has taken the toll that it has and the course that it has in the United States, um, they don't realize that like the healthcare infrastructure, all the hardworking people, doctors, nurses, PAs, NPs, pharmacists, all of those folks have still been kind of firing on all cylinders through this entire time. The other thing to remember is that there's been a significant toll to the healthcare workforce during the pandemic and leading to now there's been a lot of burnout. There's been uh, a lot of difficulty in maintaining the hours that need to be maintained to cover The patient's needs. So, there's been huge nursing shortages. There continues to be physician shortages. And so, people are being asked to continually do more and more with less available to them, which ultimately boils down to longer waits for you as a patient, more stressed out healthcare providers trying to take care of you, and worse customer service, if I have to be honest, just because of the amount of weight that you'll have and access to care that's available to you. And so, right now, we're seeing continued, you know, normal trends in some regard of like influenza rates in the US, but an uptick in things like RSV and some other viruses as people come into close contact with each other that are resulting in a little bit of a surge of viral illness. And in normal settings, maybe that would have put stress on our healthcare system. It's impossible to predict. But when you add that to the insult of, you know, nurses being out because we can't find enough nurses to fill those jobs, less beds in hospitals as they're being filled with other patients who are more critically ill, increased requirements for, you know, back to school notes or back to work notes for doctors, and more patients presenting to emergency departments with, you know, minor illnesses or just viral infections that they might have previously just stayed home and taken some Tylenol to deal with because they can't get access to their primary care doctor, Uh, we're left with our current situation, this storm of massive wait times. Massive amounts of patients needing to be seen, and just really not enough resources to do it. In my opinion, efficiently and, and sometimes safely.
3: You outline the problems, but how do you reverse this trend? How do you help the healthcare system uh, in the burden uh, ease? You know, do politicians have to get involved? What is this country going to have to do differently to provide relief for healthcare workers?
0: That is an outstanding question. And before I even begin to answer it, um, I want to say that there are people far more qualified than me to provide economic perspectives, public health perspectives, um, these larger picture, data-driven explanations for what's going on. Um, but I do think I can offer to you what it's like, boots on the ground, as an emergency physician taking care of patients and, and doing this uh many times a month over and over and over again. Uh, I think there's some things that we can all do right now as a community um, to empower us as individuals. And the the first is if you are out there with a cold, a cough, a little bit of a fever, is to really look in the mirror and ask yourself, um, is this an emergency? Is this something that I need to go to an emergency department for? Of course, I can't answer that question for you. It's a case-by-case basis thing, but I can say that if you have very minor symptoms, you're not short of breath, you just feel crummy like you have the cold, you know, it's pretty reasonable to try taking some Tylenol, try taking some fluids, call off of work, and do the things you would normally do when you felt sick before at any other point in your life. Because I'm going to give you a big secret away. When you come to the emergency department, those are the exact same things I'm going to do for you when I see you. Because for things like RSV even influenza for the majority of people there is no special or specific treatment that we will give you we're going to just give you what we call supportive care which is just to help your body fight off the infection as it normally does and so if we could all kind of work together to do that that's one step that can eliminate a lot of the cases that we're being seen in the emergency department causing this overcrowding phenomenon and it also helps reduce the overall infection rate because while you're sitting in the waiting room you know, as a young, healthy person that just has a cough and runny nose, the person sitting next to you with leukemia and hematopoietic stem cell transplant who's severely immunocompromised um, is now potentially at risk for getting infected and getting very, very sick, even though they're coming to the emergency department for a totally different reason. The other thing that we can do, and I think we honestly need to do kind of as a society, uh, is take a hard look at the healthcare system and what we value, and I think this really just comes down to values. If we value human life and helping each other to the extent that we say we do, and from political speeches to the ideologies that we kind of espouse, especially in like kids and as we get older in the United States, we have to really think honestly about what it means to care for each other, and what it means to get sick, and what it means to recover from an illness. Um, it's really tough, I think, for most Americans who are healthy and don't have direct personal interactions with the healthcare system to kind of envision this because it's kind of a snowball effect. If you've ever been very sick yourself or know someone who has gotten really ill, um, you realize how immediately their life can change from seeing me in the emergency department to being admitted to the hospital to months of rehab to maybe never being able to do the things that you love again or maybe never be able to do your job again. And People going through that process, they don't really have a lot of time to advocate for themselves or advocate for a change in the system. They're too busy trying to get better. And it's tough for people who are not sick and who don't have that experience to understand why that advocacy is so important and why changes need to be made. And so I think by just listening to these stories, by listening to people who have gone through that process and really taking the time to not just listen but hear what others have to say... Listen to the healthcare community, to the healthcare providers, both on the front lines and those that have a larger global view of the problem from a public health perspective or a healthcare economics perspective, can hopefully start some conversations and lead to some change that will actually benefit us as a society and us as individual patients.
3: Well, let's hope that uh, there is change. Um... Because, you know, a lot of us view the nurses and the doctors on the front lines of the pandemic and now RSV as heroes. And, you know, frankly, they deserve all the assistance they can uh, garner at this point. And I really appreciate you coming on the program, Dr. Scott Kobner, emergency room physician who works at University of Southern California in Los Angeles County Hospital. Thanks for your time.
0: Thank you so much.
3: That is America Changed Forever for this week. Thanks to Paul Woody Woodhull and District Productive. Don't forget to check your local listings to see when ACF airs in your community. For now, I'm Jeff Begays, and that is how America Changed Forever...